You are listening to highlights from the creative process interview with George Ellis. This podcast is supported by Jean Michalski Foundation. My argument is that、um, there are some physicists who have kind of tried to book you down and saying we are physicists, we deal with the only reality, and you're not dealing with it. I'm defending you against. <laughs> They are dealing with the past, and it's perhaps useful to give my definition of fundamentalism. So my definition of fundamentalism is as follows: a fundamentalist is someone who takes something which is true, but it's a partial part of reality, and claims that that partial part of reality describes all of reality. And of course, there are religious fundamentalists, but there are scientific fundamentalists, and they think everything can be described in terms of science, when it cannot. And science is very important to what it can do. I love science. I love understanding things about science. But, for instance, science cannot tell you, which is something I've written about a lot, what is good and bad. There is no scientific experiment that can say a particular act was always bad. And for instance, what science can tell you at the moment is that global warming is taking place. It's leading to. Huge fires in California. What science cannot tell you is that fire in California good or bad. Science can tell you that a fire will spread under certain conditions. It won't, because of the wind, dryness, and that kind of stuff. But science has nothing to say about whether the spread of a fire is. That's a value judgment, and science cannot make value judgments. It's outside the scope of science. Similarly, science cannot, despite what some people might tell you, science cannot tell you. Something is beautiful or ugly. It's not a scientific category. I started off in general relativity, did my work with Stephen Hawking and others. Since I came back to South Africa, I've broadened out a huge amount, and I've looked at things like housing policy, science policy, stuff like that. But I've also started looking, as you know, about complexity in the brain. And one of the things I've been looking at in the brain, in fact, I've got a PhD student working on it at the moment, is the way emotions affect the brain.、Mm-hmm. And I've written a book about that, which talks about what is innate in the brain and what is not innate in the brain. One of those very, very old questions. And our brains are equipped with a set of primary emotional systems, which guide us in what to do. And they're so important that they've been hardwired into the brain. And that's part of what happens. It works through neurotransmitters, and the mechanisms are extremely clear, so we can understand the mechanisms. At the cognitive level, we can imagine things, and we don't understand imagination. We don't understand polio. We don't understand consciousness. But nevertheless, we can understand processes of cognition and how they create plans. As I've been saying, and those plans can result in things changing in the world. So. The brain is one of my major interests at the moment, and it, it, it's the frontier of science for the present century, and it's a great subject to work in. Well, where ideas come from is something I have no answer on that problem of creativity.、And、there's a couple of points. There's a huge amount of randomness in biology, or in technical terms, the plasticity, and the brain has a lot of random stuff taking place. You know, at the micro level,、mm-hmm. the flow of neurotransmitters across synapses got a lot of randomness and so on. Randomness, you might think, is a disaster because it means that everything we do is just random. It actually works the other way,、mm-hmm. and it also works this way in microbiology. If you have a lot of random stuff taking place, what you can do is you can, in effect, look at this randomness and select the bits that you want and reject the bits that you don't want. 
Now, this is what happens, for instance, with the adaptive immune system. And it happens in brains in the theory that Gerald Edelman called neural Darwinism, is that connections are formed at random in the brain, and then you strengthen the ones which are useful and you uh, weaken the ones which aren't by a process involving neurotransmitters guided by emotions. And so randomness is there at the bottom all over the place in biology, but if you didn't have that randomness, you wouldn't be able to produce the results you want. And of course, the same is true in Darwinian evolution. If there wasn't randomness in, in reproduction, then you couldn't improve things by selecting the better ones, because there wouldn't be any better ones to select. So randomness plays a really important part in biology, but it, it does so by allowing you to select things for higher level purposes. And, and selecting things for higher level purposes is one of the classic kinds of dying action that takes place. Let me tell you, say one thing. We had a little 80th celebration for us, and I said that oh, yeah. as a researcher, you have PhD students. They start off from you, if after a year and a half, they're not teaching you things that you don't know, then you're a failure as a PhD supervisor. They should be up there learning stuff, teaching stuff, developing stuff, and so your students should be teaching you stuff. I'm speaking now at the university level. In terms of little children and so on, I think there's a lot to learn from the freshness. My wife works in child development, child education, and she loves seeing the way that children see things and so on. I doubt that we learn much from them about science. Yes. <laughs> but we can learn from them questions to ask. We can see from them the ways to look at the world. And we must be careful about science. And there, there is a huge number of amateur scientists out there, and it's one of the problems with science communication. A really good science communicator can get across to people out in the general public ideas about how science works, how particle physics works, cosmology, and stuff. The trouble is most of them follow Stephen Hawking's admonition and don't have any equations in the book. And that gives you a flavor, that gives you a false impression, and so then people like myself get a lot of emails coming in. This is my theory of the physics of science. But people who have no scientific training, and science is such a complex thing, you cannot do it that way. You have to have a solid background in mathematics. You have to know classical physics. You have to know quantum physics. You have to be solidly grounded before you can make progress in science. You know, look, I, I use Google. It's, it's so good one can't really avoid it. But yeah. it should be possible to do two things. One thing would be to be able to tweak the Google preferences for yourself. So it's not just in the hands of an algorithm you get to choose. That ought to be possible. Now, the other thing which I've thought about quite a bit, it ought to be possible to set up a rating system for web pages or for that matter for other communications which ranks them as being true, false or not. So, for instance, there's this thing called Snopes where you can put something comes on and you put it to Snopes and is it true, is it not true, did someone say that or not? And, of course, you have to then trust Snopes that it's telling you the truth or not, so you end up with the readers. And then, nevertheless, I think some kind of system of quality of web pages and even posts in some sense would be incredibly useful sort of some kind of gold brown thing saying this web page is telling you the truth now of course wikipedia is a very very interesting example in which 
They have tried to police it and make sure that it is of reasonable quality. It's really quite a success. You have to be very careful of the political pages, but for instance, in science, it's by and large very good. In many areas, it's really quite good. Which I think that's an example which we should think of as really quite a big success story, which comes in all things. One must read. One must read very widely. I have a wonderful library, a very, very bright li library from physics through to sociology, neuroscience. You, you must read very widely. There's so much stuff out there. And so I have a policy of trying to locate what I would call the golden books, the books and articles which I think have got things right. There's a whole lot of people out there things wrong in so many different ways. There's a whole golden thread of people who get stuff right. Um, just a random name would be Peter Berger in sociology. He's my guide. But he wrote what I regard still as one of the best series of books ever in sociology. Uh, there's a, a professor of philosophy in Toronto who's written a book called The Mind So Rare. Absolutely wonderful book, putting a very broad view of how he's called Merlin Donald. And it, it's all the mind for it. And so I collect these books, which I think are great, and sort of refer to them, read them time and again. So I think that's something one can try and do and sort of ask yourself. So I also have a list of authors of who I think have always get it wrong. I'm not going to oh. tell you who they are because I'll get into trouble if I do. Oh, I have a list of authors who I, I know can be relied on to get things wrong. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.